want to ask you before we open up the Bible, I want to ask you to pray for Ireland. It's a strange country. We were fortunate a long time ago to have a certain man called Patrick arrive on the island. A missionary from the outside came and he shared the good news about Jesus Christ. And it truly did transform a nation. And for hundreds of years, Ireland sent missionaries because of that great endeavor all around the globe. And saw churches planted in Scotland where the gospel had never gone, all the way through England, down through Europe. Churches even planted in Rome itself. Whenever Europe had kind of degenerated and wandered away from God, the Irish were going and bringing back to Europe the hope of the true gospel. But that has long gone. Ireland currently, the Republic of Ireland, is less than uh, half a percent of an evangelical population. It's the most unreached part of Europe. It's one of the most unreached parts of the the world. Certainly the most unreached part of the English-speaking world. And so there's real need there. But a lot has changed in the country. The Catholic Church had once had a, a complete stranglehold in the country, and, and that has broken through scandals and corruption and abuse and lots of horrible things we don't need to get into. But it's broken the confidence and the, the hold that the Catholic Church once had on the nation. And so there is opportunity for the gospel to march forward, but there's not enough boots on the ground. And so I want to ask you to pray that God would send more Patricks to Ireland, that there would be people who would come to especially the Republic of Ireland and share the good news of the gospel. There's a couple of churches that I'm partnering with, our church is partnering with. One of them is 90 minutes from our church, and the other is three hours from our church. And they're reaching out to us because they're struggling to find help from anywhere. That's sad. But it's a wonderful opportunity that there is people there, small groups of people, but people there who want to share the good news of the gospel. And primarily on that island, um, in the north as well, people have a warped view of religion and especially who Jesus is. And so as a church, we've been starting to study through Luke's gospel and really trying to take time to think through who Jesus is. And I want the people in Emmanuel Baptist and people on the island of Ireland and hopefully you tonight have a little bit more of an insight into just how lovely Jesus is. So can I ask you please to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 5 and maybe we'll read and then I'll pray and we'll ask God for help. But, but, But to read and to simply get to know the nature and person of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Luke chapter 5 and I want to read A very familiar story from verse 17. Luke chapter 5, reading from verse 17. One day he, that is Jesus, was teaching. And there were some Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. The power of the Lord was present for him to perform healing. And some men were carrying on a bed a man who was paralyzed. 
And they were trying to bring him in and to set him down in front of him. But not finding any way to bring him in because of the crowd. They went up on the roof and let him down through the tiles with his stretcher into the middle of the crowd in front of Jesus. Seeing their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven you. The scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But Jesus, aware of their reasonings, answered and said to them, why are you reasoning in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins have been forgiven you? Or to say, get up and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up and pick up your stretcher and go home. Immediately, he got up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. They were all struck with astonishment and began glorifying God. And they were filled with fear, saying, we have seen remarkable things today. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we know the tendency of our heart to come to these stories that at one level seem so familiar to us. And to go into a, 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 an autopilot and to think that we understand all of the wonder of what is contained here. But Lord, we thank you that this story is all about Jesus. And we pray and we ask that you would protect us from that self-deception that makes us feel that we have exhausted our knowledge of him. But instead, Lord, you would help us to come with fresh eyes to the, the word of God and that the spirit would speak to our hearts and apply the truth deep and help us to know and worship him. May we be like the man who glorify God. We pray and ask that you would minister to us during this time and that you would make the word of life clear to us and that you would give us the grace to not simply be hearers of the word but to be doers of it also. So meet with us in a special way as we come around the book. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if there's a title for the sermon this evening, it's a corny one, Counting on Jesus. In fact, you're going to see the outline that goes up here. Everything about it is wrong. I, it was mentioned that I help out in the Doctor of Ministry program at the Master's Seminary. This outline is everything you're not meant to do in an outline a corny title, you have a, a terrible ordering system. If you're going to use numbers, start with one. That's a basic kind of common sense, but we're starting with zero. Everything about this is wrong, but the big goal is at the end of this sermon, you would know more about Jesus. 
and the call that he makes on your life. It's counting on Jesus. Some of you are parents. Some people shared with me this morning that they were parents and they have little ones and they know what it's like. There's certain children in the home. Every home has this. One particular child that you can count on to cause certain reactions wherever they go. They somehow, like a magnet, seem to draw out mischief or reaction or uh, there's always energy and activity where they happen to be. You can count on them to act. Well, it's that sense that I've titled the sermon tonight. You can count on Jesus in a certain way. There's something about Jesus, and we'll think about that in the first point. There's many things, actually, I should say about Jesus that make him altogether different. And because of that, when he walks into the room, you can count on him to provoke certain reactions, to create certain dramas and dilemmas. And and certainly, things don't stay still with Jesus. Things happen when Jesus comes into the room. And so, I want us to be able, first of all, to understand that zero are like Jesus. Zero are like Jesus. And there's so many comments we can make on this particular text, this very familiar story that appears in all three synoptic gospels. This this story that many children learn in Sunday school or even in popular culture, there's still an element where this story sits in the mind of people where friends lower their comrade down through a roof on a mat that he may meet with Jesus. And yet though there's roofs being taken apart and friends that are active and a a lame man who suddenly will walk before the end of the story, who will come in a couch and pick up his couch to walk home, the whole thing centers on Jesus Christ. And so there's certain things we can say about him. We can say, first of all, that zero are like Jesus because he is able to heal. Very obvious. You look at the end of verse 17 and you see the power of the Lord was present for him to perform healing. Now, this wasn't the first time that Jesus healed. In fact, we've already seen, if you were to read through Luke's gospel, many times where Jesus moves and acts and heals He comes and casts out the the demon in the synagogue. He comes into the uh, home of Peter's mother-in-law and he touches her and, and makes her well again. The fever leaves immediately. Many come that evening after dusk to meet with Jesus and bring before him all of their ailments. And time after time after time, Jesus is sufficient for their need. In fact, just before this particular story in Luke chapter 5, Jesus tenderly reaches out and touches the leprous man, a man that nobody else would approach. And yet, tender Jesus insists on laying his hand on him and again, immediately healing the man. And so here too, we see evidence of Jesus being able to heal. Never like a doctor who looks closely at what's wrong and writes a prescription and tells you to come back in three weeks and we'll see how things are progressing. Not like some sort of 
herbal remedy expert that throws all of the concoction into a pot, gives it a stir, gives it to you and says, in six months you may notice a small improvement. No, with Jesus, things happen immediately. His healing is total. His healing is complete. There are zero like Jesus. But not only is he able to heal, one of the things that bounces through this whole story is the compassion of Jesus. The the compassion of Jesus. You see in verse 18, these men who are carrying their friend, and uh, there's lots going on. There's a crowd. It's hard to get to Jesus, but immediately when verse 20 says he sees their faith, he deals with the situation, and he speaks to the greater need of the, the man, and he helps. And he shows kindness and goodness. These men pulled apart a two-foot thick roof. Mud and dirt and branches. And uh, that's not, you know, that's not polite. That's not something you do. But they did. And rather than rebuke them, rather than tell them off, Jesus can see what's going on behind the eyes, behind the action. And and he sees the reality that these men are burdened and and worried for their friend. And he's moved in compassion. And that doesn't surprise us because all the way through the gospel, Jesus is moved with, with, with compassion to help those in need. He's wonderful. He's wonderful. He, he is a healer, but he's not like the doctor with a stereotype, you know, terrible bedside manner. He's gentle and kind, and he, he seems to always meet the particular need felt by the individual in the moment. Zero or like Jesus, he's able to heal, he's known to be compassionate. And then in the text, we can go further, and we start to see things that are only true of Jesus. When you go through the rest of Scripture, you do see other people who are compassionate and kind. You certainly see other people who, under the uh, work of the Holy Spirit in their life, by the power of God, they're able to heal. You think of an Elijah in the Old Testament. You think of Moses, through whom many signs and wonders were performed by God. But there's certain things in this story that only Jesus can do. You consider his ability to perceive the heart of the individual. Look at at verse 20. You, You see that first of all in verse 20 when it says, Seeing their faith, he said. Seeing their faith. Jesus has that ability to see not just men putting a hole in a roof and a friend being lowered down, but but he's able to perceive beyond the action the very heart of these men. I have no ability to perceive your faith. I can see some things that may reveal out of the heart the mouth doth speak. There's a fruit of the Spirit that shows itself in your life as you move forward in sanctification. But but the reality is, I I don't know. I can't see. I don't know if your faith is as small as a mustard seed or it's Mount Everest. I have no way of seeing that. But Jesus, he saw their faith. 
He had a full measure of each man that carried that, that, that mat. He, he saw the, the full measure of faith in the individual lower down. It's wonderful, isn't it? Some in this particular group, I'm sure, are people who have wobbly faith, small faith. You have your struggles, your wrestles. Isn't it reassuring that though you do have your wobbles, Jesus sees the reality of the faith that is in the heart. And he's promised that that which he has begun, he will indeed bring to completion. But but he sees more than just faith. We'd expect the Savior to see faith. But he actually sees doubt and hostility too. Look at verse 21. The scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this man who speaks blasphemies, who can forgive sins but God alone? I remember whenever I was small and I read and would reread and think about this story, I imagined there being this outcry and a couple of men jumping out and shouting, You can't do that. And they're protesting out loud and there's a real scene being created. But look at the next verse. Verse 22, but Jesus, aware of their reasonings, answered and said to them, why are you reasoning in your hearts? In other words, it's not an out loud display that's going on. This is internal. I'm sure you probably had some raised eyebrows in the room, but but nothing's been said out loud yet. These men are watching and they're thinking and their reasoning is going wild as they contemplate the nature of Jesus and what's going on and they reckon to themselves, this is blasphemy. This is wrong. He can't be. It it can't happen that way. He's no right. He is not God. And do you know who saw? You know who knew every wrestling they had? Jesus, he sees all doubt, all hostility, no matter how privately it is held. It's very easy, isn't it, to grow up in a Christian family and to come to church and to kind of get to the point in your own head where you think it's much simpler just to conform. And actually, if you do it, You can trick your parents into thinking you are really a Christian. You can trick your youth pastor. You can deceive the congregation. They all think you're doing so well spiritually. And you just quietly keep those doubts, those hostilities, Those annoyances to yourself for the sake of a peaceful, quiet life. You'll wait till you get older and then you can do what you want. Well, you can deceive every single person in this room. But you can't deceive Jesus. For he sees not just the outside, he sees the heart. He's able to heal. He's known to be compassionate. He's able to perceive the heart. And then most wonderfully and most clearly in this story, he's unique because he's able to forgive sin. Look at verse 20 again. Seeing their faith, he said, friend, your sins 
are forgiven you. And then you have a bit more commentary in verse 24. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic. This story is not a story about Jesus heals the paralytic. Isn't that funny? I don't know what your Bible has in it. Sometimes Bibles are a little bit different. But you know the way sometimes above the section you have little bits written in italics or bold, kind of a title for the section? I don't know what it says in yours, but most of the Bibles I have in my house say Jesus heals a paralytic. That's the title for the section. Jesus heals a paralytic. Or sometimes it starts a little bit further back and it says Jesus heals a leper and a paralytic. Well, that happens, but that's not the point. That's a secondary aspect to the story. Because Jesus tells us what the point of the story is. This is a story all about how Jesus forgives sin. Jesus can forgive sin. He heals a paralytic in order to show that the main thing is true. That he really can and really does have the power to forgive sin. People talk sometimes today about how we need more miracles. If there was just more evident, big miracles, that would change the world. In Ireland, that great need we talked about earlier, if there was just miracles happening and people saw something of the power of God, wouldn't that change the nation? And the greatest miracle in Scripture is clear. Jesus says that it's not that he heals the paralytic. It's that he can forgive sin. And he does forgive sin. And today, around this globe, the gospel has been preached. And we can assume, because his word never turns void, that Jesus has forgiven sin. He's in the business of that greatest of miracles today. What more do we need? Zero are like Jesus. He's able to heal. He's known to be compassionate. He's able to perceive the heart. He's able to forgive sin. He, he possesses all authority. He possesses all authority. Look at verse 24. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sin. He has authority on earth to forgive sin. That's an important word. That's one of Luke's favorite words. He talks about the authority of Jesus all the time. And actually, so do a lot of the other gospel writers. Mark loves that word too. Because Jesus isn't just a good example, a good man. He's the Lord. And he has all authority. And Luke wants us to see that. Nobody else has authority like Jesus. There were other workers of God, but none that possessed an authority in and of themselves. And you see that underlined in the title that's used there in verse 24. Jesus describes himself as the Son of Man who has authority. The Son of Man. This is the first time this phrase is used in Luke's gospel. But it's going to be used 26 more times. It's actually Jesus' favorite self-designation. In the Gospels, he uses it over 80 times. And it's not a phrase that simply means he's human. 
He is fully human. He does get tired. He does need to eat. He does live in a real physical body. And when he's on earth here, all of those things are 100% true. But that's not the point of this title, the Son of Man. Rather, what Jesus does here is he employs this title to describe himself. Remember, in a room full of the teachers of the law, is he picks an Old Testament phrase. An Old Testament phrase from the book of Daniel, if you want to turn back to Daniel chapter 7. An Old Testament phrase that sums up the nature and power of the ministry of the Lord. Daniel chapter 7 and verse 13. I kept looking in the night visions. And behold with the clouds of heaven. One. Like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the ancient of days. And was presented before him. And to him was given dominion. Glory. And a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. Do you see how the phrase does not simply mean he's human? The phrase describes and is tied to this authority, this unprecedented, eternal, never-ending authority. This is what Jesus is like, and that's why there are zero like Jesus. There's nobody else like him. He's altogether different. And this is just one paragraph we've been studying. And it's loaded with references and descriptions about the unique qualities that our Lord possesses. There is nobody like Jesus. He's altogether different. Because zero are like Jesus, there is one question you can't avoid. There's one question that nobody in this world can avoid. He is so unique. He stands alone. He, 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 you can count on him to force this one question on every single individual. Notice in the text how there's at least two different groups in the room. Verse 17, you see the first group described. One day he was teaching and there were some Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. You have these Pharisees. There were less than 6,000 Pharisees in Israel at this time. They weren't a massive group, but they were a distinct group. When you fly long distance, sometimes depending on what airport you're flying through, you, you find those uh, uh, particular Orthodox Jews that are in the airport and they have their particular dress on. They have the curls down the side of their head. And when it comes to the right point in the day, they stop all that they're doing and they pray. And they tie a box around their arm and a box on their head and, uh, and, they, and they pray. It's obvious, it's clear, it's, it's a, an expression of piety that stands out from the crowd. 
Now, they're, they're, they're not a big group in number, but they're a distinct group. They stand out. When you think of pious Judaism, that's what you think of. Well, the Pharisees are like that. I mean, we think of the villains with the deep eyebrows and, you know, running around trying to cause trouble and always looking to try and sneak around and catch Jesus out. But in society of the day, they were, they were a well-respected group of people. They were the religious elite. They were the ones to be considered highly. They were the experts, at least in terms of practical piety. And with them, there's also the teachers of the law, or later called the scribes. They're the men who went to Bible college and did all their degrees and had done their apprenticeship and and had made a career of reading and writing and teaching the Scriptures to others. And did you notice in verse 17, these Pharisees and the teachers of the law, it's not just the local ones. Mark's gospel tells us that this event happens in Capernaum. It wouldn't be surprising for the local Pharisee or the local teacher of the law there to come and to check out why is this crowd here and what's he saying. You would expect that, but no. These men, were told, came from all of Galilee and all of Judea and specifically also from the city of Jerusalem. That's like the, the, the highest place they could have come from. The, the really successful Pharisees, the really successful teachers of the law set up shop in Jerusalem, but they've left. And they've come to this podunk fishing village in order to listen and to hear the teaching of Jesus. And there's another group. You see them there in verse 18? And some men were carrying on the bed, bed, a man who was paralyzed. It's a great title, isn't it? Some men. Just some men. I think the point is, they're not the Pharisees, they're not the teachers of all, they're just ordinary blokes. Some men. In fact, I think you can go a little bit further. You see how Jesus, as he first addresses the man lowered down, he forgives his sin. There's, there's something, it would seem, evident about, uh, evidently sinful about these characters. Maybe I'm reading a little bit between the lines, but I, I think that's implied in the text, that they're not the Pharisees. They're not the teachers of the law. They're some men. And when Jesus forgives their sin, nobody says, oh, they're not sinners. Everybody quite happily accepts that. You see how there's these two very different groups, the really religiously pious and some men. But everybody there that day is forced to consider, what do you do with Jesus? What do you do with Jesus? Because zero are like Jesus, because nobody holds a candle to him, you can't avoid that question. You have to make a decision about what you make with Jesus. You can avoid most other circumstances and questions and issues in life, but you cannot avoid that great question, what do you make of Jesus? I remember whenever 
Sarah gave birth to Isla, our oldest. We were in California at the time, in a hospital in California, and they, I don't know if this happens in Texas, they wouldn't let us leave until we had signed a name on the form. We had to name her before they let us out. We weren't allowed to go otherwise. It was illegal. That was a lot of pressure. You know, you, you kind of practice, you know, saying it tenderly, and then you practice shouting it with a lot of aggression, because you know that's going to come at some point. But you couldn't leave until it was signed. It was something that had to be done. Well, there is a question that has to be answered. And nobody gets a pass. Nobody can avoid it. And the great question is, what do you make of Jesus? Because nobody is like him. You have to answer it. What do you do? What do you make of Jesus? And there's two ways you can respond. Two ways indicated here in the text. You have that first group, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law. And what do they do? Well, they come in and they, they judge. And they ultimately dismiss. They, they look at verse 21. The scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who, who can forgive sins but God alone? You see what their disposition is. None of them are disputing the miracles that take place. None of them are disputing the uniqueness of his teaching. But they're there to weigh him up and to find him wanting. That's what they want. And their issue isn't one of peer pressure. It's not like one of them got up and said, oh, he's blaspheming. And the rest of them go, oh, yeah, 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 I guess that's true. And they all kind of knit in together. Every single one of them is reasoning in their hearts, remember. And they come up with this conclusion. Their issue wasn't one of peer pressure. It was a heart issue, according to verse 22. A heart issue that rejects the evidence that's right in front of their face. And sadly, ultimately, seek, fails to seek Christ's forgiveness. You see, these men saw themselves as the judge. They were the experts of the law. They were there to decide what was right and what was wrong. And so because they thought so highly of themselves, even when they stood in front of Jesus Christ, and could see the uniqueness of his person, they missed the very one who was sufficient to forgive their sin if they had turned to him. But in contrast, you have that second group. Verse 18 talks about those men who, who you obviously perceive that there's something altogether different with Jesus. And then in verse 19, you see how tenacious they are. They're, they're, they're pressing and digging and determined to, to get towards Jesus. They'll, they'll very truly seek him until he is found. And in verse 20, Jesus lets us in behind the scenes and he makes clear that what's moving these men is their faith. These men see him as altogether different. See him as the one that they need and the one their friend needs. And they're marked by that incredible faith in Jesus Christ. 
And we can go further and say, see, even at the end of the story, if you look at verse 25, it says, immediately, speaking of the man who had been lame, he got up before them, picked up what he had been lying on, and went home glorifying God. Verse 26 continues, they were all struck with astonishment and began glorifying God. In verse 25, at least one of them is praising God. And, uh, and I think because the others also had faith, we can assume verse 26 includes them in this process of glorifying God. They went home glorifying God. Because a true response to Jesus always leads to worship. You, you know you've responded rightly to Jesus when you yearn and practice worship of him. You see the difference between the two groups. You, you have the teachers of the law and the breakers of the law. And this one group, the teachers, they see themselves as there to judge Jesus. And the others, they know they need to be forgiven by the judge. And so one sought to weigh Jesus up according to their own terms, while the others, through faith, sought to draw close to him. Zero are like Jesus. And because of that, how you respond to him matters. The Bible tells us time and time and time and time again that the arrogant will be humbled. And the humbled, those who humble themselves will be lifted high. How you respond to King Jesus matters. He is the judge of all. The Bible tells us he's also the forgiver of all who come to him in faith. Come to me all ye who are weak and heavy laden. And I will give you rest. Seek and find. He is one in whom we can find hope. And find forgiveness. But many miss it because they're too caught up in their own head. Zero are like Jesus. And, the, and that provokes that one question. What are you to do with Jesus? And how you respond to that matters. The last thing I want us to see this evening. Are three works of the Holy Spirit. Three works of the Holy Spirit. Luke has a particular stress in his gospel where he wants us to see that Jesus lived and operated under the power of the Holy Spirit. And then in Acts, he's going to communicate to us that that Holy Spirit was given to the church. And I think that stress can be seen in particular in the verses that we've been studying together. And so I don't want to move too quickly past without drawing attention to some of the ways that we see the Holy Spirit at work here. Look at verse 16 and 17. Just before this incident, we read in verse 16, but Jesus himself would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. He seeks help from the Lord. And then verse 17 says, One day he was teaching, and there were some Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. 
and the power of the Lord was present for him to perform healing. Luke, in particular, is stressing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that the Holy Spirit was alive and working through Jesus Christ during his earthly ministry. And we're to, to see that. Luke is taking great pains to stress that, that we would see something of the nature of how the Holy Spirit works. How he worked through Jesus, and then later as he was sent to the church, how he works through the church. And so, in this particular topic of the Holy Spirit, which I think is so abused in the church at large in our world, I think it's helpful to come before we close and to notice how this Jesus who, who uh, is unique, how he works and operates under the power of the Holy Spirit and what that looks like so that we can understand better how the Holy Spirit works in this world generally. In this particular story, we see the Holy Spirit working, first of all, to grant perception, to grant spiritual perception. God is not a God of confusion. He is a God of truth. And so, in verse 18, when we see those men coming with their determination to bring their friend to Jesus, where did that tenacious spirit come from? When we read in verse 20 about their faith, where did that faith come from? Well, I think verse 17 has already indicated it was part of the work of the Holy Spirit. If you turn in your Bibles just for a moment to John chapter 16 and verse 7, when you see that this is not unique. Now, this is how the Spirit works. John chapter 16 and verse 7. Jesus says, but I tell you the truth is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. And concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. You see what Jesus is saying. The, the Holy Spirit's work and ministry is one to help people perceive that which they can't perceive with their sinful human lens of looking at this world. But that human broken way of viewing and understanding the world can be changed by the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the life of the individual where he gives us a, a perception of things that we can't understand by ourselves. In Luke chapter 5, where did that faith come from in verse 20? Well, it was the work of the Spirit a work of the Spirit through the ministry of Jesus to cause these men to see. The Holy Spirit grants perception. Secondly, the Holy Spirit brings comfort. He brings comfort. These concerned friends, they, they were burdened for their friend. They were worried about him, and, and that particular detail is commended. The, 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 these friends. They want to see their friend helped. 
They, they want to see Jesus interact with and meet their friend's need. And so in verse 25, it's wonderful to read about how this man is affected. He picks up. He goes home. But he goes home, according to verse 25, glorifying God. This man finds not just legs to walk, but personal comfort and joy through his encounter with Jesus. Acts chapter 9, verse 31, reminds us that again, this is not a unique ministry of the Spirit in Luke chapter 5, but one that continues in the church. Luke chapter 9, verse 31, it says, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up, and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It continued to increase. Though the Holy Spirit is at work in, in the life of Jesus here in Luke chapter 5 to bring comfort, to help these men that were once in despair and to cause them to leave their encounter with Jesus full of comfort and joy because that's what he does. That's part of his ministry to grant perception, to bring comfort. And most importantly, to foster the glory of Jesus. To foster the glory of Jesus. I read a moment ago from John chapter 16. John chapter 16, verse 14. Jesus again speaking of the work of the Holy Spirit says, He will glorify me. He will glorify me. And that's what the Spirit does. He, he doesn't point to himself. If you're ever in a meeting and the whole focus is on the Holy Spirit, on this power or force at work, something's wrong in that meeting. For the ministry of the Holy Spirit is one that draws our attention to Jesus. It points to Him. It causes us to love and to worship Him. And that's what happens here in Luke chapter 5. Verse 25, the individual, the man, goes home glorifying God. And then in verse 26, they were all struck with astonishment and began glorifying God. There's a glory that's fostered through this encounter, through this work of the Holy Spirit. And that shouldn't surprise us. We read earlier in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, that the Son of Man, that, that He will have power and dominion and glory will be given to Him from every tribe and kindred and tongue, that He will be worshipped. And the Holy Spirit is the guarantee that that will take place. Every knee will bow before Jesus Christ the Holy Spirit will make sure it takes place. He fosters the glory of Jesus amongst the people. Now Luke wrote not just the Gospel of Luke, but the book of Acts as well. And he makes clear that the Holy Spirit that came and ministered through the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus leaves and sends that Holy Spirit to be alive and active in, in, in the, the church. And he ministers through individuals in the church. 
And that should give us hope. Jesus prayed in John 17 that we would know the glory of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And that ministry of the Holy Spirit is not one to make you shake or or make you feel warm or give you some personal mystical experience. It's a ministry like it was for Jesus to allow you to be used by the Spirit to grant perception to others, to share the good news with those around you and to see the Spirit work to grant faith to bring illumination, understanding, transformation, to be able to have the Spirit at work in your life, to to be a source of comfort to others. We've been in Emmanuel Baptist eight years now, and I think we've matured as a church. It's always dangerous when you say that out loud. I think we've matured as a church, and I think the mark of that is now the believers minister to each other. When one is struggling, the other sits down and talks. And they can do that with confidence, not because they've read some great self-help book about how to help others, but because they have confidence that the Holy Spirit works through them to bring comfort to others. And The Holy Spirit works through us, if we are believers, to foster and to give glory to Jesus Christ, to encourage others to do the same, and to be engaged in that noble task ourselves. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. He motivates our desire to glorify Jesus, and He causes us to motivate others to do the same, to worship our Lord and Savior. And so if you're a Christian tonight, You need to know that that one of the greatest gifts outside of salvation that God has given to you is the gift of the Holy Spirit. For you are not impressive in yourself, but you are a wonderful weapon in the hand of God because you've been endowed with the power of the Holy Spirit that enables you to be a minister of the word to others, to to be one who who brings comfort to others, and and one who, who encourages the worship of Jesus Christ. Isn't Jesus wonderful? And even His gifts, especially His gift of the Holy Spirit, is wonderful. If you're not a Christian this evening, and maybe even as you've seen something in the text about the ability that the Lord has to see into the darkest quarters of a heart and to know you in a way that nobody else does, to know you better than you know yourself, you know there's no hiding. You can cry out to God here and now for forgiveness. For Jesus forgives sin. And you can ask the Lord to, 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 to help you to understand. If, if you're struggling, if you're wrestling, ask that He would give you the gift of the Holy Spirit that you would see clearly the glories of Jesus Christ. The Bible assures us that all who seek after him with all their heart, will indeed find him. 
You remember that encounter with Jairus? After he's told that his daughter has died, Jesus speaks with him and tells him that she will be okay. And he says, Lord, I believe, yet help my unbelief. That's a great prayer to say. Lord, I believe, yet help my unbelief. I was talking to an older lady uh, this afternoon. And she mentioned to me that her favorite psalm was Psalm 139. You know that wonderful psalm in Scripture? I'm going to turn there just for a moment as we close. Psalm 139. All about the Lord's intimate involvement in the life of the individual. This older lady was sharing with me how this, this psalm is her favorite. She loves to know the closeness and the, the proximity of, of God in her life. And I shared with her, this particular passage of scripture was the one that was used by God to save my wife. But before she became a Christian, she sat in church and she felt like she deceived everybody else. But then she heard, where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to the heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me, and your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me, and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. And the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. She read those words and she was terrified. Because she couldn't hide. And thankfully, God worked in her life. Worked through that fear. To cause her to stop putting on that pretense before everybody else. And to cry out and to ask for forgiveness. And she found him while he was still to be found. And when that happens, there's an amazing switch that happens. For now she loves this psalm. And now she reads it in a very different tone. Where can I go from your presence? Where could I flee from your presence? If I ascend to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. You see the difference? What you make of Jesus matters altogether. For he either stands before you as judge, who sees all, And you can't hide the reality of your sinful heart from him. But in a moment, because he is the great forgiver of sin, the one who was formerly our judge becomes our savior. We we move from being enemies of God to being children of God. 
What can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord? And it all changes depending on how we view Jesus. Today is the day of salvation. Tonight, if you do not already know him as Lord and Savior, he sees all, he knows you completely, and he's willing to forgive all who come to him in repentance and faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the glory that Jesus Christ is the forgiver of sin. We, we do thank you that nothing can be added to that work. We do thank you that, that his was a sacrifice that was perfect, that met your, your holy standard. And we thank you, Lord, that in him is found forgiveness of sin. We pray and we ask, Lord, that you would cause each individual in this room to weigh once more the condition of their heart and where they find themselves wanting. We pray, Lord, that they would continue to, to feel unsettled until they find their rest in you. And we pray that gloriously the Holy Spirit would be alive and working to grant that perception that is needed to respond to the call of the gospel that they may taste and see and know that the Lord is good. Lord, we thank you that we have a wonderful Savior. We thank you that he deserves all of our best. And we pray that you would help us in the rest of this evening and indeed in the week that lies ahead to live for his glory. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.